Hello, my friends, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and today I am speaking with political scientist John Mueller. John is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and the author of several books, including his 2006 book, Overblown, How Politicians and the Terrorism Industry Inflate National Security Threats and Why We Believe Them, his 2010 book, Atomic Obsession, Nuclear Alarmism from Hiroshima to Al-Qaeda, and his 2021 book, which is what we will be discussing today, The Stupidity of War, American Foreign Policy, and the Case for Complacency. This is my conversation with John Mueller. I'm joined today by John Mueller. John is a political scientist with Ohio State University and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. John, can you start by telling us beyond what I just said a little bit about yourself and your academic background and how you got into this particular field? Yeah, I've, I've always, I'm a political scientist and have long been interested in changing attitudes. And this particular project, as well as some other work I've done over my career, um, has been uh, focused on changing attitudes toward war. Uh, I used to be at the University of Rochester until 2000 and then uh, uh, came to Ohio State in 2000 later that year, and then also hooked up with the Cato Institute afterwards about five years ago. And the the book in particular we're talking about is The Stupidity of War, American Foreign Policy and the Case for Complacency. But you've been writing about this broad topic for a while now. And this this is your most recent book, correct? Pretty much summarized a lot of stuff I did before and then advances it somewhat. Came out last year, 2021. Can you give a broad uh, overview of what this book is about? The broad overview is to look at what I mentioned, the changing attitudes toward war. And when I first went into the research, um, I was amazed how easy it was before 1914, before World War I. Uh, I was amazed how easy it was to find people who talked about war as glorious, wonderful, beautiful, cleansing, necessary, holy, redemptive, progressive. Uh, and peace is decadent, horrible, disgusting, effeminate, uh, filthy. There's a poem, for example, written at the beginning of World War I, in which a guy is going into battle, and he because he ta- talks about his going into cl- leaping into cleanliness uh, <laughs> out of filth. Uh, he uh, died very shortly after from an infected mosquito bite, so he never saw never saw uh, combat. But anyway, um, it's very easy to find it, and and I'm not talking about just like Prussian militarists, but essayists, uh, poets like this guy, uh, art critics composers, uh, philosophers, uh, historians, journalists. It's very American common. presidents. American presidents as well, yeah. It was just sort of a common thing. So there's people who disagreed with it, but nonetheless, it was very common. What's impressive is sort of a quantitative change because after, you, after World War I, uh, you can't find it at all practically. I've looked really hard and I found maybe two instances. In fact, I tried to look up one of them again. I couldn't find it again. But anyway, maybe two people uh, overall. Uh, here and there that said, that said something somewhat similar about the gloriousness of war. Uh, they, they, uh, the, the, um, um, the appeal of war in the sense of drama and so forth is still there. Uh, it's, uh, as one pacifist before World War I put it, it's a supreme theater of human strenuousness. So they, they, the fact that it causes a lot of attention is, is clear. But no one was talking about it being wonderful. And instead what happened was there was an almost complete consensus uh, about getting rid of it. getting When they talk about war, they were, of course, talking mainly about international war, not civil war, uh, the, like the wars that they had just fought in World War I. 
Uh, that obviously did not prevent World War II from happening, but many of the same lessons were drawn since there seemed to be territorial demands of like Hitler, for example, were there. And so after World War II, uh, they went back and redid the redid everything. The United Nations uh, took over for the League of Nations and so forth. And it's been remarkably successful. Uh, since World War II, uh, Europe has been at peace until the Ukraine thing happened. Uh, for the longest period of time since the continent was uh, invented as a name about 2400 years ago the 75 years 77 years of of international substantial uh, international peace and then what's also happened is that uh, other countries outside of europe and outside of the developed world have also joined in so that uh, there's been a declining frequency of international war of all sorts um and uh, and and almost a complete absence uh, in in this century uh, the only three in the century were the two 9-11 wars by the United States, uh, and now, of course, the war in Ukraine. Um, so uh, that's a very important development. Uh, in the old days, in Europe, in the 19, in the in the, like 15th century, 16th century, uh, there may be one or two years in which there wasn't a war going on in the whole century. And the chroniclers would, you know, identify it, saying, wow, it's really weird. We didn't have a war this whole last year. Um, now, of course, uh, peace has become the... the, uh, the uh, the, uh, uh, the the standard and the reaction, I think, to the Soviet to the Russian invasion of Ukraine sort of suggests that almost universal condemnation. Uh, people saying we don't do that crap anymore. What are you doing? This is an anachronism, uh, and uh, and virtually no real support overall for for the invasion. Um, so I think that uh, it's a, it's it's snapped the perfect uh, uh, the perfect record in Europe, obviously. Um, but uh, I don't think it's going to change the general idea of the aversion to international war. The basic idea is that starting in 1918, but certainly starting in 1945, 46, the countries increasingly came to see that if they have problems, they always have problems. They would deal with them in various ways, but they would not use direct warfare to do it. So you still have sanctions, you still have intervening in civil wars, you still have obviously political and, uh, and economic pressure in various ways. Uh, you still have some border disputes uh, in which there's actually fighting from, from time to time, but they're very small and they're usually almost always entirely in extremely remote areas, which are unpopulated and ungarrisoned. So it's been a, a really important change and that's what I chronicle in the book uh, and now have to deal with uh, for the stupidest of wars, perhaps uh, the one in Ukraine that happened after the war took place. We're recording this, by the way, on May 14th, right? We probably should tell. <laughs> I was about to mention, maybe we could say a little bit about uh, if if people are listening to this episode when it's not a fresh, hopefully when it's no longer a fresh news item that <laughs> Russia has recently invaded Ukraine. And did you just suggest that the only there's only been essentially three proper, so to speak, international interstate wars in this century, both all, all started by the resident superpowers? Right. And it, well, two of them, of course, were the 9-11 wars, which almost certainly would not have happened. Um, I was very much opposed to both wars, but uh, it almost certainly would not have happened that 9-11 not happened. Uh, the invasion of, of Iraq and certainly the invasion of, um, of uh, Afghanistan. Only three now years. this invasion of, of Ukraine. I, I think that fact alone would would startle a lot of people because there's been there's been war, but it's been civil war or insurgencies or so, like you said, small, smaller military operations. Those are those are the only instances of international war in this century. That mm -hmm. that surprised me. 
You mentioned that in in addition to the broad attitude to war changing over time, that World War I was the first instance of a concerted anti-war movement. But there had been people prior to that who had said negative things about war, maybe broadly been anti-war, Mark Twain and some of the the anti-imperialist league. But World War I was the first war that really saw an actual movement protesting the war. Is that right? Yes, and it's it's rather surprising because obviously wars have been horrible and disgusting forever. But uh, what I did is I looked at World War I and said, okay, there's this big change, clearly, quantitative change. People are no longer saying war is wonderful. Before, four years earlier, they're saying it was. And what happened to all those people? Why did that happen? What what was unique about World War I? Well, it was very destructive, but I mean, there's been wars going back, which were fought to total, total annihilation. Um, and uh, mud and, and, and mud fil- uh, leeches, dysentery were not invented in 1914. They've always been horrible things. Um, and so it wasn't it wasn't unusually unromantic, unromantic. It wasn't unusually destructive um, and uh, various other things. And but the, the only 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 situation, the only condition that was different, really, was the first war. It was the first war in history before which. There was an anti-war movement. I mean, there have been various, you know, philosophers sitting on rocks or Mark Twain or somebody saying war is really a stupid thing or Benjamin, Benjamin Franklin and everything. Um, but um, th- th- there was never an organized anti-war movement, even after colossal wars like the 30 Years War uh, in Europe, which uh, decimated Central Europe or, or the uh, Napoleonic Wars. Uh, there was glimmers. There, there, there were pacifist groups like the Quakers, for example. But the a real anti-war movement, it was quite surprising, started about 1889 uh, with a publication of a novel by an Austrian noblewoman, which went viral. <laughs> That's not what they call it then, but they would know. Um, and uh, it was translated in a million languages and so forth. And she started, it was very active in the growing anti-war movement. So that it was growing. People like Andrew Carnegie were joining it. Obviously, Albert Nobel were joining it, big businessmen. Um, and it was there, but it was a gadfly movement, mostly dismissed by the, the war, the hawks. Uh, but after the war, uh, their, they, 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 their time had come. And so everybody said, what were you talking about all that time? You know, I, I used to be a warmonger, but now I'm a pacifist. And you were, I seem to remember you saying something about that in 1913. Uh, could you talk more? And so many of the ideas were there about having international mediation or arbitration uh, uh, were, were basically put into the motion. Outlawing war itself was put into motion. Um, and then also, the argument was that wars are mostly t- fought over territory. Uh, and, and sometimes that's not the main reason, but essentially that you can even say that about the Ukraine war. Um, and so what we'll do is we'll get rid of that. What we'll do is divide the whole world up into a ch- bunch of chunks, which we call countries or states or nations, and, uh, and they'll each be admitted to this club, the League of Nations, or later the United Nations, and that's it. You can't change borders anymore, except by peaceful means. Uh, and so that was probably the central idea uh, the, during that whole period of time. Um, and uh, it basically caught on after 19, uh, 1918, and then was reified after World War II. Uh, and is basically, you know, and you can see it in the action, in the, in the reaction to the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, people saying, wait, uh, you know, in, you know, people were surprised. I was surprised that Putin could be so stupid as to do what he did. 
Um, and uh, it's just that we don't do this anymore. I gave you two other examples, by the way, of that happening earlier. One was in 1990, Saddam Hussein's Iraq took over Kuwait, arguing this really should be part of part of his country, Iraq. Uh, and there was, and he expected some support, including from the, what was then the Soviet Union, and didn't get it. Everybody said, we don't do this crap anymore. We don't take over other countries and try to incorporate them into our, 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 our country, which, of course, had been standard, standard stuff for millennia. I came, I saw, I conquered, you know. I might be misremembering this, but did, did he also think he ha- he might have the, the tacit approval, at least, of the United States when he did that? I don't think so, no. Okay. I think he expected a certain amount of opposition, and, uh, and he might have expected some, some support from the Arab states. Uh, who, who didn't like Kuwait very much anymore either. But I think he, he did expect some support from the Soviet Union or other communist states at that time and didn't get it. The other, the other example is a little bit different, but it's related. Uh, and that's when civil war broke out in Bosnia in the 1990s in, in Europe. There have been a lot of civil wars, of course, but hardly any in Europe. Not only have there not been international wars, but there's been, but there's been a few, but very few civil wars in Europe. And people, again, were surprised, saying, we don't do this in Europe anymore. What are you doing? Um, and, and, and again, seeing it as an anachronism. So those are sort of two in episodes that are similar uh, previously, and the reaction is very similar to them, that uh, this is not something we do anymore, which is daffy in some respects, of course, because history is filled with <laughs> examples of conquest um, going back forever. Um, it'll open any history book before 1914, and it's all over the place. Um, and uh, so, so it's not the case that, um, well, it, it, it was similar in some respects to slavery. In one respect, slavery was universal, carried out in virtually every country in the world, going back for millennia. Uh, it's in the Bible. God tells the Israelites to take slaves and so forth. Um, and uh, every religion, you know, I think, basically supported it. For, for millennia, uh, eventually people jumped up and down and said, let's get rid of slavery. And the, the reaction to that was very similar to the anti-war people, the reaction to the anti-war people. Uh, people said, what do, you, what do you mean? It's in the Bible. Every, some people are born to be slaves. Some people are born to be masters. Get off it. Um, and they said, no, you should get rid of it. And for, basically for moral reasons. Now, there wasn't any good economic reason because slavery mostly was working pretty well from a sheer economic standpoint. Uh, particularly the Atlantic slave trade, for example. Um, and uh, eventually, over 100 years, slavery died, uh, formal slavery uh, died out. You may have informal slavery and so forth, but you can't go to New Orleans and buy somebody anymore. Uh, and if you even bring it up, it's, it's, it's absurd <laughs> to even think about. Um, so I think it died out in that sense. So dueling also would be another example. It used to be very common. And about, uh, about 1880 or so, it pretty much died out, uh, certainly in Europe. Formal dueling. Um, before it's kind that, of it was it, ridiculed it, it, out of existence, right? Yeah, I think mainly ridiculing. Mark Twain was very important in that, saying this is really stupid. Uh, and in many respects, I think what people were saying about war was the same thing. Look, countries had difficulties. How does it help if they run around killing each other to solve the difficulty? They're both worse off afterwards. You know, why would you want to do that? Uh, anything is better than that. Um, and so consequently, um, and, and, it's, and so as I use the book, The Stupidity of War, in the sense that they didn't necessarily use that word all that much, but that's essentially what they were saying. 
this is really stupid way to carry out your life out. Same with dueling. Uh, you know, why would you want to go out in the field in New Jersey and shoot at each other because you, your your honor's been besmirched? How does that get your honor back? It might get you a bullet in the, in the belly. I read an old dueling manual uh, from about 1850 or so, uh, and it, it talks about how you do duels. Uh, it never uses the word dueling. It always says you meet on the field of honor. Um, and so they're saying, what the hell is honorable about being getting a bullet in the, in the belly over something over something some guy said uh, at, a, at a fancy costume ball? Twain was one of the people who was very strong on that. So is a similar. What we have is big institutions like slavery, one of the master institutions of the human race. No one wants to talk about it in that term, but it was dying out in 100 years, incredibly fast in all of what was then known as Christendom uh, and then gradually elsewhere as well. Um, and also dueling, which everybody knows what dueling is. You know, every old book, every old ballet, every old novel has a duel in it. And we, we now have a musical comedy or musical at any rate about, uh, about the famous duel between Burr and uh, Hamilton. Um, and, if, and you still have young men who get outraged over the same things, which is usually women. Um, and um, they still get very mad at each other, but it doesn't occur to them doesn't occur to them to challenge the other guy to a duel. You could even have a legal duel, like with boxing gloves. It's just, it, 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 you know, you may do this, uh, sue the other guy, or you may try to uh, insult him, it, just as he's now insulted you and so forth. You may want to uh, talk to his friends and tell, talk him down and so forth. A lot of things you can do. You can maybe apply economic things, like get him fired from his job or something like that. But it doesn't occur to you that maybe we should go out and weehawk in New Jersey um, and shoot at each other. That'll solve the problem. <laughs> it doesn't come up. Uh, and even, even meeting in Weehawken, New Jersey, and fighting it out with boxing gloves, which would not, of course, be illegal. Everybody knows what, everybody still knows what duels are, right? Uh, and we, you know, kids play games with duels and, and from the age of two. Um, and, uh, it, but, but no one does it anymore. It's completely vanished, like slavery, almost. And with any luck, like, War is potentially on its way to being ridiculed out of existence. That's maybe a little uh, optimistic, but that's the trajectory you're kind of documenting and, and hoping continues. Yeah, they, they, there's, there's several reasons for war. The, the initial reason by many of the people was basically aesthetic. It's really disgusting. And, you know, it's stupid. Um, there are also other arguments that economically it's stupid uh, because if you want to, if you want to uh, get goods, go over and buy them. You know, there, there was an argument, for example, in the early 20th century that Germany would want to take over England, Britain, uh, so that it could own Canada. They said, why do they want to own Canada? So they get the Canadian wheat. And then the response was, well, they can do that now. <laughs> you go to the Canadian farm and say how much you want for your wheat and you buy it. You don't have to shoot anybody. You don't have to you don't have to own Canada to buy their wheat or their oil or anything else. Uh, so there's basically an economic argument saying that free trade, open trade, international trade uh, is the best way to do it. And you don't have to do it at all the downside that obviously is there uh, of war. So you have sort of the aesthetic thing and you had the economic sort of practical thing. Um, and uh, so there, there's a set of arguments that sort of came together. None of them knew, um, though the economic argument might, might have been a little bit new. In other words, really realization of uh, the Adam Smith type yeah. thing of, uh, is really only a couple hundred years ago. Mercantilism is a bad idea. Um, and uh, the free trade is a good one. 
was it was it certainly blossomed over the course of the 19th century before that. So you're talking about all of these reasons why war is ugly and stupid and disgusting. One counter thought to that might be, okay, but, you know, sometimes obviously it's disgusting, but we have serious security concerns that we need to address. Now you have you quote approvingly of uh, Calvin Coolidge when he says, if you see 10 troubles coming down the road, you can be sure that nine will run into the ditch before they reach you. Does that pretty generally reflect your view of the security justifications for war as well, that these that a lot of the threats are overblown or non-existent or self-inflicted? Yes. Um, I've, I've done a book, in fact, called Overblown, uh, looking at security threats. And this, this book also brings it up to date. Um, the, the, we've constantly exaggerated the threat. Uh, uh, for, for example, during the, so, during the Cold War, uh, there was almost no, and I, I document this quite a bit in the book, uh, there was, there's virtually no chance that Soviet Union would invade Western Europe or attack the United States. They had ideas about revolutionary violence and class warfare, of course, which they said all the time. But there was there was almost zero possibility that they would get into another war that looked anything like World War II with or without nuclear weapons. Um, and there's also I've just got an article came out the other day in a journal called Responsible Statecraft about uh, terrorism. Uh, and after 9-11, there was a massive overreaction to the dangers inherent in terrorism um, in, in Al-Qaeda. Uh, Al-Qaeda, turns out, was pretty much like Lee Harvey Oswald, the assassin of John Kennedy, a fundamentally trivial entity that got horribly lucky once. Uh, after 9-11, it seems to me that going after Al-Qaeda made sense, but not using war to do it. Uh, going Bombing, using, um, using uh, subversion, working with the Taliban instead of against it, uh, and working with other countries in the area. Who are similarly concerned about about the about the small sub-state uh, terrorist groups? Because the so Taliban we, never liked Al Qaeda or Osama bin Laden; it was a thorn in its heel from the start. Right. And that's what we should have worked with instead of tra- taking it out, trying to take it out, and then getting into this disastrous twenty-year uh, forever war uh, over the issue. Now, I also did an article also in the same journal a few about two years ago, uh, looking at the possibilities. And one of the things is the thing you just brought up. The Taliban was not that comfortable with Al Qaeda overall, um, and uh, Osama bin Laden had actually promised when he entered it, entered Afghanistan, not to uh, carry out terrorism, even even verbal terrorism, and he did it a lot, of course, and they got more and more mad for the most part. Um, so I think he could have worked with those people because they didn't like having these guys there either. Well, and on the eve of the war, didn't they progressively try to try to save face and, and you know, get like, just show us any any evidence that he did it and we'll turn him over to this country and wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you'll get him pretty soon. And OK, let's drop the evidence requirement. And OK, well, then they just kind of progressively say, like, just give let us save face at all and we'll give him to you. Yes. George and Bush didn't have the Bush it. administration demanded to be given directly over to the United States. They're also willing to turn him over to a neutral country, uh, a Muslim country. Um, and there were two Muslim countries that would really like to have gotten him. One was Saudi Arabia. He was actually a renegade from Saudi Arabia himself. And they've been trying to get him out for four or five years, matter of fact. And the other was Pakistan. So I think those are about two of the three or four friends that the Taliban had at the time. Both of them were extremely hostile to Al-Qaeda, uh, I think, particularly Saudi Arabia. Um, and uh, you could have worked with them. 
uh, to, to leverage things with the Taliban. It would not have been easy. I can't guarantee you it would have worked, but I think there's a good chance it would have. But it wasn't even tried. Uh, George W. Bush, like his father, over Saddam Hussein in, uh, in Iraq, uh, said he was not going to have any negotiations. He just had to turn them over to us. And uh, he attacked us, therefore, and we think he did it. And uh, they wanted more and more evidence, which is not unreasonable, obviously. Uh, Bush was opposed to that. Can you talk a little bit about your subtitle, how complacency and how appeasement plays into this? Like if, if threats are overblown, then not addressing them is actually a pretty viable strategy. If, if more than half the time the threat that we're perceiving is exaggerated or non-existent, we would have been better off just ignoring it, even if that wasn't a perfect option, might have been better than starting a war to solve it. Yeah, the, uh, the, uh, the, the Vietnam certainly is, is that issue. You know, obviously, it was an exercise in futility. Uh, the idea that there was going to be this big domino effect was not it was uh, much exaggerated uh, and not going into war, still opposing the expansion of communism, perhaps. Uh, but uh, not going not going to war would have been a preferable strategy. And if they had been followed, the communists might have won. It turns out they did eventually anyway. Uh, but a couple of million people would not have been killed uh, in, the, in the case of both uh, Afghanistan and in the case of Iraq. Uh, what the United States mostly did was convert those countries into something even worse or pretty much the same as bad as had been the case under the Taliban and under Saddam Hussein, which is saying a lot because those are two pretty contemptible regimes. And instead, hundreds of thousands of people have died in, in that process. And it's not clear that uh, things have really gotten any better in the case of Afghanistan. Obviously, they've gone back to square one. So those would be the case where complacency would have been better. In the case of the Soviet threat to Western Europe, being concerned about it and being interested in it and maybe even forming NATO in some sense might have made some a reasonable sort of thing or at least have a coalition of the anti-communists. Uh, but there was, uh, from a military standpoint, there was really nothing to deter. Uh, one of the few people who realized this was Dwight Eisenhower, of all people, the president of the United States. Um, he, he uh, I document this uh, extensively in the book, uh, when he flew to meet Stalin immediately after World War II, after the war in Europe was over, he's flying back and he's flying fairly low where there's not any clouds or anything. He looks down all the way and he says, everything is destroyed from Moscow to, the, to Western Europe. They're not going to want to do that again. Obviously, they didn't want to do it with nuclear weapons either, but they wouldn't want to do that again. Uh, and then he met them, and he, he was very much an anti-communist, of course, uh, but he saw it as sort of a peaceful penetration, not as a warlike thing. Uh, you know, the United States has spent, during the Cold War, something like $10 billion, $10 trillion on nuclear weapons and, and, and methods for delivering them. And I think that money could, be, could have been substantially saved, which is one of the things that Eisenhower actually wanted to do overall. So that would have been meeting with complacency. It would have been better than what happened. So speaking of the Cold War, one thing you suggest is that the uh, that it wasn't the containment strategy that helped to win the Cold War, but the failure to apply the containment strategy. Can you can you well, first of all, can you describe a little bit what the containment strategy was and why our eventual failure to apply it helped win the Cold War? The basic idea of containment strategy is keep them where they are uh, and not let them expand. So that was the idea of NATO, and the concern was that they were going to take over Western Europe and so forth, which they had no intention of doing. But, but actually what happened was containment failed after 1975. 
uh, Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia fell into the communist camp. So then did Angola, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Afghanistan, and South Yemen, about 10 countries, Grenada as well, Nicaragua maybe. And the and what these countries all did was no, they, they, the United States didn't do anything to, really to stop it, pretty much. Um, and what they did is they all turned into economic, political, and military basket cases, many times with civil wars. And they all looked to the Soviet Union for maternal warmth and sustenance. Uh, and the Soviet Union uh, said, you know, we would have been better off contained. Uh, we didn't need these. And it basically, they, uh, as I argue in the book, and uh, quoting other people who agree with me as well, um, including Strobe Talbot, um, the Soviet Union basically self-imploded. It was falling apart. Uh, it was incredibly badly managed. The fact it lasted as long as it did is impressive. Uh, increasingly a basket case. Uh, these acquisitions didn't help any. Um, so if anything, they exacerbated the problem and speeded up the end of the Cold War by essentially not containing them uh, after 1975. So uh, the, U- the U.S. became exhausted with the containment strategy because of the failures in Southeast Asia and just kind of sat by complacently while some some element of the, the domino theory came true. Maybe that's an exaggeration, but a lot of a lot of countries went communist, started suckling at the teat of the Soviet Union and uh, helping to overstretch them and overburden them maybe like the British Empire, and then that was something that contributed to their to their eventual fall. Maybe not, you know, the 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 whole story, but one part of their general overexpansion and mismanagement was encouraged by the fact that we let them expand. That's a really interesting way to formulate it, and I hadn't heard that before. Well, they, they, they did it. Uh, it wasn't that they really thought about it a lot. Yeah, exactly. It was kind of an accident. Right. Well, it's sort of the Vietnam syndrome. We don't want to do any more Vietnams. Yeah. When Ford seemed, Ford, President Ford seemed to be wanting to get involved in the war in Angola or Reagan in Nicaragua, the argument was, that's another Vietnam. We're not going to send any troops. And he basically restricted them. So they, so what they said was, we'd rather those countries go communist than do another Vietnam to try to stop it. So and so the, often with our interventionist foreign policy, we have negative unintended consequence. We inadvertently well, we intentionally support the Mujahideen in, in Afghanistan and in, inadvertently help to train people who will later become terrorists uh, hostile to the United States. In this case, we have a more non-interventionist foreign policy and have a very positive unintended consequence that it helps to stretch the Soviet Union pretty thin. Yeah, it can work both ways, right? <laughs> I wanted to ask, you You begin assessing security threats to the United States and documenting in the book that they're, as you said, either overblown or exaggerated. You you begin assessing those after World War II, and I'm wondering if complacency or appeasement has anything positive to say for itself prior to World War II, but during World War II, specifically in the United States case. Did you start, did you start there for space reasons, or did you start there because you think World War II is, is an exception? Yeah, they, uh, well, World War II is a tricky thing, um, to say the least, for my thesis. There's an extensive argument that it would not have happened if Adolf Hitler had been run over by a truck, or if, if, if he had been killed in the beer hall putsch rather than by a bullet wound, rather than the guy marching next to him. Um, the, the argument, I've got like 15 or, or 20 historians which would agree with that, that without Hitler, World War II in Europe would not have happened. Um, he was very much an outlier, this extreme, extreme atavism, I guess you could call him. 
Um, so uh, uh, the the word appeasement um, has is problematic uh, because it implies uh, giving in and then making then he'll want more, and that's the argument that happened. That, that that's what happened with the Hitler at Munich in 1938, uh, and I think and, and I, again the large number of historians would agree with this that uh, he was unappeasable. He was determined from his gut to go to east uh, to attack the east, particularly. Poland and, and then ultimately the Soviet Union, the Bolshevik areas, as he would see them, um, and uh, and uh, giving in at um, at Munich was well, didn't have any effect on that. Uh, in other words, he, he did not grow his appetite did not grow with the feeding. As a matter of fact, it's pretty much clear that if there's anybody else except Hitler had been in charge in Germany, including some of the other top Nazis around him they probably would have accepted that. There was no one else. There's really no one else who really wanted to uh, expand to the East, willing to take the dangers that went with it and had the ability basically to pull it off, except Hitler. So appeasement has been given a bad name uh, because of that. And I think it's, and, and a lot of historians would agree with me on that, that it's just simply not, not the case. Appeasement frequently does work. If I can give you an example where it did work. John Kennedy, uh, when uh, Nikita Khrushchev uh, put missiles into Cuba, uh, said, we, don't, we can't accept that. We have to get those out of there, and we will invade if, unless you do something about it. Uh, Khrushchev then said, okay, how about appeasement? We'll take them out. John Kennedy said, cool. And, you know, things have been pretty stable ever since, except the Cubans keep saying nasty things about us, and vice versa, of course. Um, so uh, appeasement did work in that case. Uh, it probably could have worked with Putin in the current uh, Ukraine thing. I can go into that if you want. I don't know if you want to get into that. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, okay, well, what Putin wanted from the beginning was recognition. And this, this is in the book, and the same as China's, basically, uh, that uh, he wanted to be treated like a big person, like a big, like a, like a big power. Uh, and he mostly wasn't by the United States. Uh, and my, my, my argument is that if China and the and Russia want to be treated like grown-ups, why not treat them like grown-ups? Uh, give you know they can be helpful in a lot of places. They can be helpful like trying to settle things in Pac in, in Afghanistan currently. Russia could be helpful in trying to settle things in Syria now. Maybe we should be working with them instead of against them. Uh, neither of them seems to have Hitlerian. Uh, notions of expansion, though some people argue that's not the case now for Putin, but I don't think that's right. Um, and so consequently, if they want to play a bigger role on the world stage, let them, appease them, uh, you know, treat them as, as grown-ups uh, because they get insulted if, they, if you don't. And I think in many respects I have a, that the war in, in Ukraine could have been prevented. I'm pretty sure of this, not certain, uh, because you have to get inside the mind of Vladimir Putin. Uh, but um, coming into uh, the Biden administration last year, uh, the Russians made two efforts to try to say, look, we're really concerned about the fact that you might bring Ukraine into NATO. And we've been saying this for 30 years. In other words, before Putin, the Russians have been saying it ever since the 1990s. And not just Putin, Putin. everyone in the Russian leadership. Essentially. Yeah, right. right. From the beginning. And I, I and and what the Americans in the West says, yeah, well, we're not threatening you. Uh, this is a peaceful alliance. We have no intention, of whatever, attacking and so forth. So we're just gathering more countries into the club, uh, and that I think is true. 
but that's not the way the Russians see it. So the issue is basically you've got a country that for 30 years is saying you're doing something which we think threatens our security. And we said, no, we're not trying to threaten your security. And they keep saying, yes, you are threatening. And what matters is that they think their security is being threatened. So therefore, what you should do if you really want to have peace with this country is appease it. Okay, they think uh, having NATO, having Ukraine come into NATO would be a security concern for them. I don't think I think they I think they're daffy about that, uh, but they, that's what they say and that's what they think. So what we should do is appease them. As it turns out, Ukraine is something of a basket case economically, even before the war. Uh, and they couldn't get into NATO for another 25 years, no matter what, because it has to do all kinds of reforms, particularly with respect to corruption. So consequently, it wasn't going to get into NATO anyway. So all the United States had to do is say, uh, OK, how about we don't let them in for at least 25 years uh, when uh, Putin will be 95 years old? He's 70 now. Uh, and then we'll talk about it. And they didn't ever did that. Uh, or they could have said, OK, let's work out an agreement like we did with Austria after World War II to neutralize Ukraine. Uh, and they never said that either, as far as I can see. Uh, so the, the Russians, I think, were appeasable. But essentially, what they saw was that their their uh, forays to try to get a dialogue going were going nowhere, and they're just being ignored. And I think that festered more and more in, in Putin's mind, and finally led to this stupid war. But uh, I, think he, the, I, I think there's a good case could be made for the point that he could have been appeased. And it would require doing something that they're going to do anyway, which is not let Ukraine into NATO, uh, because there's rules about, you know, you have to have a certain amount of stability and so forth. And you can't have a lot of corruption. And unanimous um, support from the ex- existing NATO membership. That's right. There are plenty of NATO members, like including apparently Germany and, and France, who don't want it in anyway because of those reasons. They probably wouldn't get in for a long time anyway. Uh, and uh, and But they weren't willing really to say this all that much publicly. Though both the Russians, I think, knew it, um, and uh, certainly the Ukrainians did. Uh, but basically, making that public and dealing with it in that terms uh, could possibly have stopped, kept the war from happening. And but, why uh, do you think those those options weren't taken? It's it's an arrogance thing, and by, by the United States, it seems to me. Uh, I talked to somebody who's in the State Department, long, you know, twenty years ago. And he said we just sort of ignored the Soviet Union or the, now Russia because it seemed to be so impotent. Well, that was understandable, and it wasn't a mess. Uh, but uh, the, the idea of ignoring somebody that has that much military force, and that it's, it's obviously an important country, not how you slice it, it was basically daffy. But there was a, they, they, what the Russians felt was a certain amount of contempt for them, uh, and they wanted more respect. And it seems to me you could have given them more respect quite, quite, quite painlessly overall. And, they, and that basically wasn't done either in the Biden administration or before. John Mearsheimer makes the argument that the United States is re- relatively, you know, unique in it, and it's the level of power it has currently, and so is able to pursue this kind of vision of liberal hegemony of trying to impose liberal order all around the world. And and I, I take it from your book that you're a little bit skeptical of of that position. Is that right? Yeah, I agree with Mearsheimer a lot in what he proposes, but not how he gets there in many respects. Yeah, can you talk about that? I don't. Yeah, I don't think they were trying. They were trying to impose liberal democracy on these countries. There was not any kind of a crusade. And in fact, 
the expansion of NATO is mostly engineered by the countries who want to get in, and and they were being accepted by the United States. Uh, it seems to me, though, I agree with them in the sense that when we are doing this, they're constantly saying, "Going." I was in favor of NATO expansion in the early years. And then, then I kept getting this word that the Russians were really scared about it. And it wasn't just, you know, the Putin types. It wasn't the communists. It wasn't just the nationalists. It was liberal, Western-oriented economists that said, we, we think that's a threat to our security. And I thought, they're crazy. It's not a threat to their security. It's not intended to be. But the problem is they thought that. And uh, that should have been taken much more seriously much earlier. So I agree with Mersheimer on that. I don't think there was any this crusade thing is true about the, the liberal hegemony overall. Um, it was more, if anything, people wanting to get into NATO rather than NATO wanting to enlarge itself. Um, but they were also not paying attention to the, the, he's right about that, that they were not paying attention to the negative vibrations that was setting up in, the, in, in Russia. Yeah, and you talk about uh, the the Iraq war too, as there was a couple times in your book where you started you, you were writing about something and I had an objection in my mind and you addressed it in like the next paragraph, which was nice, about George George Bush and talking about his justification for for invading Iraq. I feel like if you ask a you know, random American today, why did we go into Iraq? You'll get 18 different answers and none of them will be coherent, yeah. um, <laughs> including if you ask George W. Bush, but that he that the whole idea of bringing democracy to Iraq was this kind of afterthought when it was clear that the stated objectives were were irrelevant. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, the main justifications were that it was a threat to American security, which I thought was ridiculously overblown. And that Saddam Hussein would get these weapons and he'd use it to dominate the Middle East. Well, if he did try to dominate the Middle East by having nuclear or other kinds of weapons of mass destruction, the reaction of the other Middle Eastern countries would have been to bond with Israel or the United States, uh, not, not to bond with him, as they did with the Gulf War in, in 1990. So the idea, I think, was just totally ridiculous that he was going to uh, master the, the, uh, the, the uh, uh, Middle East. And, and also he's going to give weapons, nuclear weapons, to terrorists. Uh, and when that, both of those arguments basically fell apart, the weapons of mass destruction and the te- terrorist connection. Then we started talking about building democracy. There's some people who thought it'd be an interesting side effect, some of the neoconservatives and so forth. I don't think it was very important uh, in the uh, real decision. And when when uh, Bush announces the war, he doesn't even use the word democracy. He uses these national threat issues instead. You don't think much of the neoconservative position that American power has been crucial for world order in the last, in this century. Can you say something about that? Yeah, um, it seems to me what, what, what I posited is we go back to the beginning of his talk that uh, the change of attitude toward international war is all you need. If people don't want to go to war, nothing will stop them, uh, you might say. Uh, and after certainly after World War II, uh, we had Germany and France, for example. And uh, there are a lot of very clever people in Germany, a lot of very clever people in France. And for centuries, they use this cleverness to figure out how to get into wars with each other. Uh, since World War II, as far as I know, there's never been a French, anybody in France or Germany who said, you know, we used to do wars. They were really wonderful. Let's do it again. You know, if you did, the only people you see that would be probably somebody in an insane asylum. And the reason they're in an insane asylum is because they said that. Um, in, in other words, the idea that you need kind of rules or economics or anything else to keep the Germans and the, Jap- and the French from going to war with each other 
is is uh, that strikes me as being wrong. It's the other way around. If Germany and Japan and uh, France decide they will no longer go to war with each other, one possibility is to see, well, maybe we can deal with each other, you know. If we're not going to go to war in 20 years, maybe there's some German plate and I might invest in Germany or I might invest in France or we might increase trade. So it's it, it's a facilitating thing. If it's not going to be a war, one of the things you might do is go to this country and see if there's something you want to buy. You can buy or something. Maybe they want to they'll buy something. You can sell them something of your own. So it's facilitating. It's not that international trade causes peace. But the desire for peace causes or facilitates international trade. And you might I'm, I'm guessing you would say that about, you know, some of these uh, some of these other peace theories. So there you're talking about, I don't know, peaceful commerce or the idea that international trade causes peace. And you're flipping the script. Like If we're at peace, trade is going to flourish or similarly institutional the UN or NATO or the European Union that are causing international peace when it's probably the other way around. We happen to be at peace. So let's deepen our relationships and our connections and maybe join some clubs together. Um, I'm not sure how that would fit in with democratic peace thesis. Do you want to say something about that? Yeah, it, it facilitates peace as well. I mean, in a democracy as well. Uh, what happens is if you don't have to worry about defending yourself against some other rogue state or whatever, one of the things you might try to do is say, maybe we don't need a strong man to run our country. So it probably facilitates democracy as well. So I think democracy has been growing more or less for the last 200 years uh, fairly well with some major setbacks, of course, uh, such as uh, Nazi Germany, <laughs> just to pick one out of a hat. Um, but uh, nonetheless, it's been, it's been growing uh, substantially. And I think more and more countries have come to see that this is a good way to do things both economically and politically. And it's generally growing, though we've had setbacks and we're, there's a certain number of setbacks even, even currently. So I think it's, it's facilitating. The international rules, the reason, you know, I already talked about earlier, uh, the, the reason that we divide the country up into nation states and then they say, say you can't change the borders is because we want to have peace. It isn't that because we have these countries with international borders, that we want peace any more than the Germans and the Jap and the, and the French uh, uh, have stayed out of war each other, uh, each other because it would be go against the common market or the, you know, the coal and steel community. Instead, they created the coal and steel community because they wanted peace. In fact, the, uh, the, uh, spe the first speech, the first messages of that with the coal and steel <laughs> community, which eventually led into the European Union was saying that. Uh, well, if we intertwine our economies, we're less likely to get into war with each other. That's why we should intertwine our economies. Some people said that's a really bad idea, particularly labor unions, as bad economics. And uh, the Schumann, the guy who started it, it, he never answered it in those terms, but he probably would have said, I don't care whether it's bad economics. It's good peace. Uh, and anyway, I think it's good economics. And he, I think he's right. Uh, but, but, the, but, but the argument, the reason they have the intertwining of the economies uh, is because they one of the main impetuses for it is so that they don't go to war with each other. It's not that because they intertwine their economies, then that they suddenly become peaceful. You know, nor and they have these institutions. The institu institutions don't cause the peace. The peace causes the institutions. And as I said, also the peace facilitates trade and may facilitate democracy.
Are there other writers who have, I'm, I'm sure there are, but can you maybe recommend uh, uh, other authors or books that go into that that specifically, or even just articles that flip the causality of democratic or economic interdependency peace thesis? There's uh, James Payne, P-A-Y-N-E, has done some work in this area. Uh, but it's sort of an unusual phenomenon because everybody wants to believe that institutions did it. Or they want to say that the that uh, one of the big things to explain in, in international relations is the absence of major war since World War II. And my explanation is the one I've given you at, at length. Uh, other people talk about, well, it's because of it, you know, the things you brought up, like increasing democracy or increasing institutions or increasing trade. Um, I, I tend to be fairly unusual in this. That, that, that's not the same as being wrong, in my opinion. <laughs> or another ec- explanation is just, American hegemony, right? That's the, ex- yeah, you know, right. William Crystal or someone like that would probably, I mean, I'm sure they, they would latch on to the democracy thing too, but I feel like the what they're really saying is the U.S. dominating the world is what makes everything peaceful. Well, you have to, what you have to do is come, they never come up with examples of where that happened. Two countries are about to go to war. The United States said, no, you're not going to war. And they said, okay, hedge. Uh, the idea that, the, in fact, I can find you quotes in which people say that the reason France and Germany have not gone to war is because of American hegemony. Uh, and it just seems to me, basically, that's craziness. Uh, the French and the Germans, if the United States didn't exist, still wouldn't want to do that, what they did in World War II or World War I to each other, much less the Napoleonic Wars and a million other wars. Um, so that, that the idea that France and Germany say, got really mad at each other, and they said, you know, if we go to war, the United States will be really mad. So let's not go to war. I mean, that's what they're saying. And it just seems to be nonsense. Now, they we, didn't need the United States to come and say, you know, peace is really a good thing. Uh, instead, what they, uh, they figured that out all by themselves. And they didn't have the United States come and say, you know, getting rich is really good. Prosperity is really good. Uh, and it's, oh, yeah, I never thought of that before. These I things are self-advertising. I think, I think they're smart enough to figure those two things out all by themselves. So what do you think about current alleged security threats to the United States or to the world in general? And, and to what extent are they overblown, exaggerated, self-inflicted, non-existent? Yeah, they, they don't exist, essentially. Um, uh, people will argue this, particularly with respect to Putin, of course, and I'll disagree with that. But in the book was written before this war. It seems to me that there is no country that has Hitlerian ambitions. There are countries that want to play a bigger role in the world stage, Russia, for example, and obviously China, but that's not the same as taking over countries. Um, There's this idea that they're going to have hegemony, and that's a good argument that Mearsheimer uses all the time, and I can't figure out what it even means. I keep asking him, as a matter of fact, and Steve Walt as well. Uh, In the United States dominates the middle, they want the United States has a hegemony in the Western Hemisphere because it dominates the Western Hemisphere. Well, Cuba has been thumbing its nose at the United States for 60 years. Venezuela is doing it now. Some other countries are doing it as well. Uh, it's not clear the United States says, stop thumbing your nose or I'm going to swat you. Um, it basically, I don't know what it means to be dominant. Um, uh, if it means that they take it, pay attention to what you want, that's probably reasonable. They should anyway, and vice versa, as a matter of fact. But it's not uh, it's not uh, a major causal uh, 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 impetus. It seems to me. 
Yeah, I think if you were to look at the political landscape of places where maybe outside of Western Europe, of places where America is dominant, allegedly dominant, and say, you know, is this is this the political landscape you predict a dominant power would have wanted to come about? It's not always obvious that that's the case. Right. It, it, uh, it just seems it would have happened anyway. The issue of the United States hadn't been there. France and Germany wouldn't have gone to war. Uh, China would have developed pretty much the same way it did. It's been, it's been encouraging uh, to these countries. Uh, it certainly helped uh, with economically, for example, in Western Europe development and also Japan's development and also China's economic development. Uh, and I think many of those things are good. In some cases, they may have overdone it. Um, but the countries basically had to do it themselves. Uh, the Japanese uh, were defeated after World War II. Uh, the United States encouraged them to become democratic and capitalist and prosperous, um, but they probably would have done it anyway, overall. They certainly didn't want to do World War II again. You think that terrorism is an overblown threat, and you've talked a little bit about Russia, and then you have people like John Mearsheimer or realists in general that seem to be much more concerned about China. What, what, what is the, what is the like, exact concrete concern that would happen? happen with China that would threaten our security, that they would try to invade the United States, that they would be dominant in an area of the world that we want to be dominant and that's strategically important? I don't know that I fully understand. Yeah, well, I don't fully understand myself. <laughs> uh, that, uh, the issue basically is they obviously want Taiwan, so that's a whole separate issue. And if we appease them, would it? If they take over that, then, then the argument is then they'll want Japan or South Korea or something like that. And I think that's just not true. The, the, the Taiwan thing is obviously a very complicated issue. It goes back 75 years. And uh, right now, of course, it's basically in a hiatus and China has a lot of other things, including critically COVID to worry about. But I think China does want to play a bigger role in the world stage. And I think that's fine. The, interesting, I did an article also again in the journal, uh, the online journal called Responsible Statecraft about China's effort at hege hegemony. One of the things they did is Belt and Road Initiative, which is which is peaceful. Um, they are basically giving out loans to various countries to build projects that would uh, redound well toward their favorability toward China. And it mostly hasn't worked. It's been a waste of money, big time. So that a few years ago they were spending forty billion dollars on it a year, and now it's down to five billion or something. They also tried to sort of bully countries, something called wolf warrior diplomacy. Uh, sort of use their economic clout to get countries to agree with them or do things. And that mostly has not worked. Favorability in China and say South Korea or Japan or Australia is way down because of that. So they've, they've tried it a little bit. Uh, neither of these are war. Uh, one is using economic clout uh, to, uh, to uh, in a positive way. And the other is using economic clout in a negative way. For example, refusing to buy coal from Australia anymore. So Australia has to now sell all this coal to, to India. Uh, it hasn't been a big problem for them. Uh, and meanwhile, the contempt for China has gone up big time. So it's not clear that they've done a very good job of it, even, even at that low level. But it seems to me they have no territorial ambitions beyond, obviously, the issue of, of, uh, of Taiwan. They also are interested in the South China Sea. And the problem there is, that they're really heavily dependent on the South China Sea for their economy. Huge percentage of all goods and services go, go in and out of the, through that area. 
And they have on the other side of the world this thing called the United States Navy, which like to say it's policing the global commons. Well, the problem with that is uh, police do keep streets open, but they also can close streets. And what the China Chinese are worried about is they get somebody like Trump, who on a whim will close down the South China Sea with the American Navy. So they, they're, they're, they're understandably antsy about that particular issue. I think basically they can be worked with, but uh, it, it, uh, things have gone, you know, south overall in the last year. They've also, uh, there, there's also plenty of other problems with China. Um, I did a Cato piece on this uh, about a year ago, two ago, uh, called China Rise or Demise, which you can get online free policy analysis thing. Um, and uh, under Xi, uh, Xi Jinping, their current leader, um, they become more and more authoritarian. They extinguished the independence of Taiwan, of uh, Hong Kong in the 2020. And uh, things have really tightened up. So they've gotten much worse in terms of openness. But they're also closing down the economy in many respects. Individual companies have to have a representative, presumably a bribed one, from the Communist Party on their board to make sure they don't make they don't take too risky a position on some things. So they're, they're meddling more and more in the economy, more or less Sovietizing it. And uh, I think that's a, a prescription for slowed growth, which is what's happening. There's probably a tension there with the way people who are concerned about security issues think about that. I mean, on the one hand, if we're if we're good democratic liberal capitalist types, we should believe that they're becoming more authoritarian is going to weaken them over time. But it also seems to scare us that they're becoming more authoritarian. Yeah, well, there's nothing. Yeah, there's nothing to do about China, which is the way this paper paper argues. I wrote it after the book because I thought I needed to say more about China because it is, you know, probably the main security threat that people worry about. Um, and they're basically doing everything wrong. Um, but there's nothing you, you can't go to them and say stop doing that because they'll still do it. So all you can do is wait. Uh, they have to reform themselves. They may self-destruct, which is what happened to the Soviet Union. In many respects, it's happened in China with Mao. Uh, the, uh, the, the, he closed down the openness after he was dead. They, they opened up and they improved enormously. But now things are slowing down again. They have a major problem of, uh, of not having enough babies. So there's going to be a gap of uh, uh, be a huge number of people on, on retirement and not very many people, working people, to uh, uh, pay for that. And that's going to happen fairly soon, maybe as early as 2030. So they've got a lot of problems. The main problem, I think, the main central problem is that, and Xi, Xi Jinping says this all the time, that the most important thing is to keep the Communist Party in control. And he's, so it's totally rational. And if you say, yeah, but that's going to cut economic growth, and say, I don't care. Um, you know, the main thing is to keep the Communist Party in control. And uh, it's not, and for a while there, it was looking like possibly there was a uh, loosening up uh, early, the very first decade of this century in particular, uh, but didn't go very far. And now it's being tightened again and again. They're closing down the economy, closing down the free talk, free speech, and so forth is bad for them. Let me give you an example. Uh, it's, uh, I saw somebody on a Zoom session someplace, and she does, she does um, focus groups. And she went to Taiwan about 2008. And she did the focus group uh, with a bunch of uh, bright, bushy-tailed young people 
who had just finished her, you know, going out and take over the world and so forth. Uh, and she said, well, what, you know, where do you want to work in the future? Well, some mm -hmm. said they didn't want to stay in Taiwan, pretty good place. Others said, uh, well, I think I would go to the West, United States or Western Europe and see what I can do there. Um, you know, contribute to that and make money myself. And the third was to go to mainland China, uh, where it was realized the risks are pretty high, but the upside potential, it seemed to them, was really pretty impressive, potentially. Risky, but, pretend, but potentially good. So that was 2008. Uh, she went back again, she said, in 2017 or 18, which would be before COVID and before the closing down of Hong Kong. And she did the same focus group and the China option wasn't on the table anymore. And no one even, you know, so that, I mean, that's not hardcore <laughs> tight evidence, but it's pretty indicative of, uh, of uh, what's happened. Uh, it would have been really, really good for China to remain attractive to smart, upwardly mobile Chinese on Taiwan. Really good for them, be good for Taiwan too. And now that's not happening. Uh, maybe the United States will gain because they'll come over here. That's great. <laughs> uh, but uh, but the thing is, from China's standpoint, that's a that's a big problem. That's a problem. And if it's and if it's emblematic of something bigger, which I think it is, that's not good long term for the Chinese. But I don't know how you can do that. I do anything about it if you're the United States. You can go over and preach, say you should let more Taiwanese in. They want to live here. Uh, can we lead by uh, example? Yeah, right. And, and the best way is probably by example. Yeah. Uh, the United States has led by being an admiral, admiral country, including in the terms of opening up its economy and uh, being democratic. I mean, for all its flaws, and it has plenty, uh, it's really a, 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 everyone wants to come here. And they're right. <laughs> uh, you know, it's really amazing country in a lot of ways. Uh, it can't even destroy itself. It tried both in Afghanistan and Iraq, and it still is, <laughs> still is going, uh, you know, just amazing uh, in many respects. And so uh, it's example as a really admirable place where a lot of interesting activities taking place, where they have certainly have plenty of problems, but they work on them, uh, is uh, exhilarating to a lot of people. In other words, why can't we be more like the United States? Uh, including in that, of course, is the incredible... A prosperity of the country, which everybody wants to emulate, um, if, and for good reason. What broadly should the United States foreign policy look like? If you had, if you had your way, your appointed czar. Well, cutting back on the defense budget, not being worried about trying to that every problem has to be solved by a bullet. Now, the Ukraine thing is a whole separate issue. Recognizing that China and Russia want to play a bigger role in the new world stage, and there's no reason why they can't, and they could be constructive, um, uh, would be a way, a way to go, it seems to me. Uh, in other words, there's there, essentially, my argument is there aren't any threats to American security. So there's no, there's no Hitler trying to invade Long Island or something like that. So I think we can afford, particularly with this big cushion of these two oceans, to play it cool for a while. And looking back at the things we tried to repair, we made them worse. We made Afghanistan worse. We made Libya worse. We made Iraq worse. Uh, we uh, eventually made Vietnam worse. Vietnam now, of course, is one of our buddies, but uh, that, one, that was a long time ago. Using military force to solve problems seems to be pretty counterproductive uh, or unproductive <laughs> overall. What's a realistic path to a to a large great power like the United States significantly pulling back how interventionist 
it is. How, how have other great powers managed to pull that trick off? Well, a lot of them have just declined. Uh, the United States is unlikely to decline economically. Uh, but basically, um, you know, they're, they're, and one of the things I quoted in, his, in the, this article I mentioned is uh, the prime minister of uh, Singapore saying that, you know, he wrote something really amazing. Lee Kuan Yew? Yeah. If you've given up thinking that there are politicians that can sound like adults, I suggest you look at YouTube and pick up one of his things. Um, and what he said was, uh, one of the things I just mentioned was the United States makes a lot of mistakes, but somehow they survive the mistakes. And then the second thing he said was, you know, they've been messing around in East Asia for the better part of a century now, and they're still welcome. <laughs> and I thought that was, you know, it doesn't mean that we agree with everything, you know, they wanted us to join them in the war in Vietnam, and we didn't do that. But we think they're being too tough on China and said, whatever, you know, plenty of disagreements, but they're still welcome. They're still welcome. Uh, if that's what hegemony is, is that's the way China should should behave, it seems to me. You want to be welcome in these countries, and it doesn't have that much to do with uh, slinging a lot of weight. Um, a certain amount of weight will be slung simply because of the wealth of both China and the United States. Uh, you want to be on the right side because that's a really good market. They'll buy your stuff. Um, and so you want to keep them happy. Um, that just, that's a plain, just a simple, straightforward economic calculation. Uh, you don't kick your uh, you don't kick your best customer or your best supplier in the in the scrotum. Um, so that uh, consequently, what you want to do is, uh, uh, but but the United States basically is still welcome in Asia and uh, whatever you know. It doesn't mean everything, but it means a lot. And I thought that was a really insightful sort of thing. Hmm. To say. Are there any current or new projects you're working on? Well, the main thing is trying to figure out the war in in, in Ukraine. And uh, where that's going and what we could have done differently. So that's probably my, my primary focus. I've been working a little bit on public opinion, uh, trying to predict uh, what public opinion will ha- in Russia will be. I've done a lot of work with public opinion in the United States on its long wars, Korea, Vietnam, and Iraq and Afghanistan. So you're work- you said you're working on Russian public opinion for this. Yeah, so now the question is, if the war in Iraq, if the war in <laughs> Ukraine really lasts a long time, which it may or may not happen. Uh, what is the likely thing for the, with Russian opinion, judging from the way the United States reacted to its wars? At, at the very beginning of the, of the four American wars, Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Iraq, <clears throat> support was very high, 70% or, and it's more or less the same in Russia as far as anybody can tell. What happens is as casualties start to come in, there's a rapid decline in support, and then it sort of tapers off. It's, you get sort of, there's a lot of people at the beginning or sort of reluctant supporters may drop off pretty quickly. Uh, what's what's impressive is that this, and then it continues downward uh, at a slower rate after a time, after several, after a year, after several months. Uh, what's impressive uh, in the American data is that it's not uh, events don't matter in the war. In other, uh, I'll give you an example. In uh, the war in Iraq, there was the Abu Ghraib torture thing. And uh, that was a really bad thing. And it dropped support for the war by about 10%. But a month later, it was back up to where it was otherwise. And then later on in the war, something good happened. Uh, namely, they caught Saddam Hussein, and support for the war went up by 10 percentage points. But within a month, it was back down to where it was before. So good and bad events in the war may cause it to tweak a bit, but they don't stay that way. Um, so it's, it doesn't matter what's happening in the war doesn't matter what kind of propaganda they're getting. 
all they have to do is continue to get the two, uh, no, two things. One, the war is still going on and our guys are being killed uh, for the war to decline. The other thing is you don't need is anti-war movements. You don't have to have a lot, you know, they keep looking for people in Russia who want to oppose the war publicly, uh, which is not a very easy thing to do now. But the wars in Korea and Vietnam were quite comparable in a lot of ways. Uh, and they, and support for them de- declined just as, basically, as I've said, in the same pace, uh, despite the fact there was no anti-war movement in Korea, but there was a big one in Vietnam. So I don't think public anti-war movement necessarily is necessary, nor are events. So in general, I think it seems to me what's going to happen is there's going to be support, even if censorship continues and everything, support for the war in uh, Russia, if it drags on for a year or two, which might happen, um, is going to gradually erode overall, uh, whether the war goes well, whether the war goes badly. Also, if the war goes well for a period of time, it doesn't make much difference. So, for example, in the war in Iraq, there was this surge in about 2000, 2008, 2009 or so. And during that period of time, uh, people thought that the war was going better. They said, are we making progress? Yes, more people said it. Uh, do you think we're winning the war? Yes, more people said it, 15 percentage points higher. So they thought the surge was really working. But if you ask them, do you approve the war? No change at all. In other words, if you've already decided the war isn't worth fighting, uh, to find out that now it's going well, doesn't change, you know, it's, it hasn't been worth it hasn't been worth uh, spending the lives on already. The fact it's going well doesn't improve that. It doesn't bring back those dead people uh, into office, uh, into life. Um, so I think in general, that's probably what's going to happen in, uh, in, 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 uh, in the war in Iraq and Russia, assuming the war doesn't end fairly soon, which is also, also a possibility. And are you likely to publish uh, some articles on this in Responsible Statecraft? Uh, possibly. I, I, I probably can put this one up on my, uh, that Cato. Okay. Paper. And I'm also looking at uh, the conversation, a website um, that is social science stuff is interested, but I don't know what's happening on that. I Did just, you say condorsation? As in condorsay? No, no, conver- conversation. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not the foster. Uh The conversation. So uh, I can send, I can send you what I've got if you want to take a look at it. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll put I'm going to post links to some of the articles we've mentioned and to Responsible Statecraft and Cato and and your works on the show notes page for this episode. So if you're listening, just click on the show notes. And if you're interested in any of these other things, where can people find you if they want to stay up to date with what you're up to? Well, you can go to my uh, website, either at Ohio State or to um, the, the website at Cato. My CV is there. I try to keep it up to date. I'm going to be working on that in the next week or two anyway. I'm not a big uh, Facebook person or a Twitter person, so I'm sorry about that part. You're not missing anything. Um, <laughs> lastly, do you have any recommendations for a book or an author that complements your work especially well? Uh, yeah, Chris Fedweiss, who's at Tulane, F-E-T-T-W-E-I-S. Yeah, he's, done, he's done a really good book on what would be really interesting now, uh, the psychology of the superpower. If you're a superpower, what kind of things you do? But anyway, he'd be, he'd be really good. Great. Thank you for that. John, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me on this show. Okay, thanks a lot, Chris. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. That was John Mueller, and his book once again is The Stupidity of War, American Foreign Policy, and the Case for Complacency. You can find that and other topics discussed on this episode linked to in the show notes. If you're enjoying Ideas Having Sex, I encourage you to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
We are on Apple, Spotify, Google, and Stitcher. And I also encourage you to rate and review the show. It is a small thing, but it helps to spread the word to new listeners. So I thank you in advance. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening.